Amen, amen. Hey, grab a seat. People, yes. This is amazing. I haven't stopped smiling all morning. I'm not looking at a camera lens. I'm looking at faces. And this is good. Uh, It's so good to be back together. Good to gather as Redeemer Bible Church this morning. It has been 119 days since we sat in this room last. So what that means is we just almost spent a third of a year scattered in our worship. For sure, worshiping. Worshiping in our homes, it, it was nonetheless worship, but we were scattered in our worship. And so what, that's what makes today all the sweeter is to come back together. And as, even if you're watching online, we're so glad that you are with us, but to come back together. And um, this third of a year, these 119 days, I found to be hard. Anyone with me? I got grumpy, and uh, Erica knows I got grumpy. The staff knows I got grumpy. I just, this was hard. There were aspects of this that I just did not like at all, and it stretched me, and the Lord and his goodness put his finger on things in my heart that he wanted to address, Um, and, and I know that many of you can relate. This has been a hard stretch, and there's something sweet to this morning to be back together, but we also know this. God was at work and in and is at work in the midst of the hardness. I know one of the ways that God has been at work through all of this is he is reminding me and he's showing me the things that are ultimately important in life and he's showing me the things that like I thought were so important that are actually so fleeting. What do I mean? In this last season, maybe you as a family have had more time to sit at a dinner table together and you realize something, that matters, right? That time together matters. We played games. Families went for bike rides. We were together. And mom and dad, maybe you didn't feel like a constant Uber, right? Just running from one thing to the next, but there was actually time to just be. We picked up the phone and we called people just to talk. And, and, and we learned and we were reminded, here are the things that matter. And we, we were also reminded of the things that are so fleeting, that we thought were so rock solid, uh, like sure to never go away. At the beginning of all this, the, to- the stock market just tanked. And you had to wrestle with like how much of my ultimate security do I put into some of this? I didn't know they could do this, but they stopped playing sports. When they announced that March Madness wasn't going to happen, I literally, I can you not, I had this cognitive moment where I'm like, does March still happen then? Like, do we just go right to April? I'm like, I, I literally had a cognitive moment where like, you can't cancel March Madness. Restaurants closed, movie theaters closed, the entertainment industry shut down, and it just, it just stopped overnight. For many of us, work looked different. Thank you to those who work didn't look different through this season. And you had to keep going, and you kept going. We're so thankful for you. But I know for many of us, work looked different. And I know for many of us sitting here, work is even a sore subject to bring up because this season cost you something dearly on that front. Everyday things we took for granted were just gone, like that. The first week we went online, we had a little powwow at 4.30 as all this stuff would start to break uh, at the end of the week. And uh, I said, no, we're meeting in person, let's go. Like we're meeting like normal, let's go. I'm walking out the door of the office, I get a text that says, the governor just capped meeting size, turn around and say, okay, we're going online, let's go. Like, just like that. 
Things were just gone. But if we play 2020 right, God can use this year as a beautiful reminder to us, as a beautiful teacher to us of the things in life that ultimately really matter. It can reprioritize some things. If we slow down in this season, we don't have to go back to a frenetic pace. Let it teach us, let it remind us of the things that ultimately matter and the things that in light of eternity might not matter as much as we thought they did. And that's why as we regathered, I want to take us to a book in the Old Testament called Ecclesiastes. And so if you have a Bible, and if you're online, uh, uh, join with us in getting your Bible to the book of Ecclesiastes. And if you've ever read Ecclesiastes, you're like, whoa, 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 I'm coming out of four months of kind of depressing stuff, and you want to go into another four weeks in Ecclesiastes? Yes, I do. The book of Ecclesiastes is a beautiful, beautiful gift to us from God. Uh, as you turn there, let me tell you a bit about it. This, this book is, is the record of an older Solomon, an older King Solomon, and, and uh, he, he is the preacher, it says, of the book. And he, he is, um, he's doing something throughout this book. He, he is trying to teach that seeking ultimate meaning in anything other than God is ultimately meaningless. Let me say that again. He's teaching that seeking ultimate meaning in anything other than God is ultimately meaningless. And there's this, this uh, statement, this word, this Hebrew word that appears all throughout this book. In 12 chapters, it appears 38 times. It's the Hebrew word hevel. And in our English translations, it's also often translated meaningless or vanity. But um, the, the Hebrew root of it has kind of this more beautiful pictorial nature to it. It literally means smoke or vapor. And all throughout this book, in fact, if you're in Ecclesiastes, look at uh, verse 2 of chapter 1. Right out of the gates, it says, vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Five times, one verse. Hevel, hevel of hevels. When you talk about something being holy or holy of holies, it's communicating like ultra super holy. Right out of the gates, Solomon is saying, vanity of vanities, hevel of hevel. Everything is meaningless. If there is no ultimate supreme, if there is no life after this life, everything here on this earth is ultimately meaningless. And so over and over again, 38 times in this book, we come across this Hebrew word of hevel. Um, he says if, if you try to find meaning, if you try to find purpose for your life in anything that isn't ultimately meaningful, in anything apart from God, it's, it will last as long as you see smoke rising from a fire. It will last as long as you see your breath on a cold day out of your mouth. You can't catch it. It's there and then it's gone. Uh, 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 Daniel and Jonathan Aiken write a book on Ecclesiastes and in it they say this, east of Eden and separated from God, we live in a cursed, meaningless existence, seeking lasting joy in things that eventually let us down. This is the reality of life under the sun that Solomon unfolds for us in this book. 
You encouraged? Is it good to be back in the house of the Lord together? And this is why many times we get to the last page in our study of Ecclesiastes and we just kind of sit there in the weight of it, feeling melancholy, worse, feeling depressed, worse, feeling like in total despair. Because we're like, ugh, what does have meaning? Where do I find meaning? What is the purpose of all this? And this is because, this is why Ecclesiastes is a gift from God to us. God puts his gracious finger on the pressure points of where we're searching after meaning apart from him. And he convicts and he prods, but then, but then, but then, but then it frees. Then he frees us. The book of Ecclesiastes should free us. It should bring us joy. It tells us the great thing all of us are seeking to understand about the years that we have on this life. That ultimate meaning is found in God alone, period. Period. Not God plus this, not God plus that. That ultimate meaning, purpose for our life is found in God alone. To seek meaning or purpose in anything else will lead to utter meaninglessness. And so here's how I want to work us through these four weeks in Ecclesiastes. Uh, today, we're going to heed the warning of the book. And here's the warning of the book. Don't seek ultimate meaning in non-ultimate things. That's the warning. And so uh, we're going to be in all of chapter two today, and we're going to heed the warning of the book. And how we're going to heed the warning of the book, there's these themes that Solomon brings up over and over again. And these themes, it's amazing. This ancient uh, uh, work written thousands and thousands of years ago, it picks up the same themes that we all in this room today still struggle to look at to find ultimate meaning in our life. And we're going to look at the four areas we often look to find ultimate meaning, and we're not going to be fooled by it. Don't seek ultimate meaning in non-ultimate things. Then, then once we're freed from that, once we're freed from looking, at, from looking to root our ultimate meaning in non-ultimate things, we can actually begin to enjoy the beauty in a day. And next week, we're going to talk about that. There are so many gifts that God gives us in a day that when we're distracted to try to find meaning and purpose and things God never meant to give us meaning and purpose, we just miss. We just fly right by. COVID hit, had to start working from home. I never noticed this before, but I'm working and all of a sudden one day I see this red cardinal and I just stop and I just watch it flying around. I'm like, that's actually pretty cool. And every day I just began to watch this red cardinal land on things, fly around, and I'm not really a guy who watches red cardinals normally. But the more every day I just stopped for a few minutes and watched the red cardinal do its thing, I'm like, that's actually beautiful. And when is the last time I've just stopped and watched birds fly around? We're going to talk about when we're freed from finding meaning and things God never meant to give our life meaning, we actually are freed to enjoy the beauty every day. 
Uh, the next, the week after that, we're going to talk about the blessings of relationships. Relationships are a blessing, y'all. People are a blessing from God. Let me try that again. I want an amen after that. People are a blessing from God. You're like, some people are a blessing from God. People are a blessing from God. And when we're freed from some of these traps of where we often try to put meaning, we're actually free to enjoy the blessings of the relationships God has placed in our life. And then the last week, we're going to talk about enjoying whatever God has allotted to us. Being free from the pursuit of more and more and more and new and bigger and better and, and just to go, you know what? I'm good. I'm good. And I'm going to enjoy what God has allotted to us. And so uh, before we get to the enjoyment that Ecclesiastes spells out for us, we got to heed the warning of the book. And so if you will, flip one page to chapter two of Ecclesiastes, and we're going to look at these four areas we often try to root the meaning of our life and things that God never meant our ultimate meaning to be tethered to. The first area is this. Seeking ultimate meaning in pleasure is meaningless. Seeking ultimate meaning in pleasure is meaningless. Ecclesiastes chapter two, verse one. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. Solomon says, I sought pleasure, and I sought it with a reckless abandon. Later on in the chapter, he said, I denied myself nothing that my eyes laid hold of. If I looked at it and I thought it would bring me pleasure, I went after it. And he said, you know what I found at the end? Vanity. Hevel. Like the breath out of my mouth, it lasted for a moment and evaporated into an eternity, into an abyss of an eternity. And it did not bring the ultimate pleasure of which I hoped it would. Uh, a great theological work was released in 1993 that kind of gets at the heart of this. Uh, theologian Bill Murray, theological work, Groundhog Day. In this movie, uh, right, if you know the premise of the movie, he lives February 2nd over and over and over and over and over and over again. And he comes to the place where he says, if I'm going to live the same day over and over and over again, and if there are going to be no consequences for anything that happens today, I'm just going to throw myself into the, all of the hedonistic pleasure that I possibly can. And so he does, and what does he find on the other side of it? Hevel. Meaningless. It did not bring, he's like, I did everything I've ever wanted to do from a pleasure standpoint, and it did not bring the pleasure I had hoped. Now listen to me. Pleasure is not the enemy here. God has created some things in this world for his people to enjoy pleasure. There's things done in the right way that bring pleasure and is actually worshiping to God. It's not that pleasure is the enemy. It's when we make pleasure the end game instead of the worship of God the end game that we find it to be so bitter. Whoever in here, who in here, had something you loved as a kid so much that you ate it and it eventually made you sick? You ate so much of the thing you loved and it made you sick. Anyone? 
you know, chip dip, gummy bears, things like that. I asked Eric, I was getting ready for this week, I asked Eric, I said, did you ever eat something you loved so much as a kid and made you sick? She's like, oh, totally, mandarin oranges. I'm like, what? (laughs) Who ate fruit to the point where they were sick growing up? Mine was for sure gummy bears. When you indulge on the pleasure itself, seeking to fulfill, it will end up making you sick. That's what happens. When we look for pleasure to be the ultimate meaning, that's what happens. Now, there are obvious things that come to mind when we think about um, looking for the meaning of our life in pleasure. And I don't have to speak to many of those from the pulpit this morning, but there are lesser obvious things. Uh, when, when he says in verse one, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. I have to ask the question, what are ways that I look for, uh, for leisure or pleasure or ease to bring some kind of soul satisfaction that God never intended them to bring? How many of us in the room have come to the last evening of a vacation and found ourselves a bit melancholy? Have found it like kind of the, the sense of like depression coming over our soul? Vacation is good, it's a gift from God, it's a chance to get away and be with the people that we love, but sometimes I know I, I can look at it and hope that the weak will do more than God ever said the weak could possibly do. How many people live for the weekend only to come to like 10 p.m. on a Friday and realize Monday morning is just a few hours away? It can't do it. If pleasure and leisure and ease and and partying and fun is supposed to be the meaning foundation of our life, we we can't, it can't stand under the test of what is meaningful and ultimate. So where are you looking to pleasure or leisure or ease to do something that God never intended it to do? And when, we've, when we're freed from making pleasure the thing that's supposed to bring all the meaning, we're actually freed to begin to enjoy all the beautiful things that God gives us in a day to enjoy as we worship him. Now, related to this, this paragraph goes on, and there's kind of in the same family of this. I want to move us to the second area we often seek ultimate meaning, uh, and it's this. Seeking ultimate meaning and riches is ultimately meaningless. Look at where he says as it goes on. Verse four. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. Now listen, this is a bit of an understatement. When Solomon says he made great works, he made great works. If we were driving down Solomon's street, our jaw would hit the ground when we saw his palace, when we saw his gardens. I mean, they're, they're literally like, ancient anomalies, what he built and what he accomplished. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the the delight of the sons of man. 
So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil that I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. All of this is smoke. All of it's vapor. It's there for a minute and then it's gone. You try to grab it and you can't grab it. Um, I call the pursuit of riches as the foundation of meaning of our life big smoke. This is big smoke. This is something that all of us can so easily be tempted into. Life under God does not work like the board game life does where the person who makes it to the end, who's accumulated the most wealth, is the winner. I remember playing life again as an adult, and I was like, wow. I never understood the premise of this as a kid. And this is good news for us, that the meaning of our life is not found in the riches we accumulate. Why is this good? Harvard Business Review article from a few years ago, they asked people, what is rich? Everyone defined rich as twice as much as they had. You never catch twice as much as you have. You say, yeah, you do. I catch it when I have twice as much as I do now. No, when you have twice as much as you do now, you'll define it as twice as much as you have then. You never catch it. Again, let me hear you. Heed the warning. The riches aren't the evil. There are people in this room who God in his sovereignty has, who has entrusted great resources. It's when we cast the meaning of our life on them that we'll find it to be so faulty and so fleeting. Everyone in the cemetery has the same amount in their bank account. I'm telling you, I've told you before, you gotta spend more time in cemeteries. It's sobering. One of the things Ecclesiastes teaches again and again and again is death is the great equalizer. So in life, hear me now, in life, it's possible to get super rich and still be super miserable because it was never meant to be the foundational meaning of our life. One of our kids is in a funny stage, kind of funny, kind of not. Everything he sees, he wants. So a commercial comes up, I want that for my next birthday. I want that, the next commercial, I want that for my next birthday. Try walking through a store aisle with them. I want that for my next birthday. I want that for my next birthday. I want that for my next birthday. And as I listen to him, I have to chuckle to myself because all God is doing is exposing that part of my own heart. New, bigger, better, more. New, bigger, better, more. The new house or the new house project won't do what you thought it would if you're looking for it to do what God never meant it to do. It won't do what you thought it would do if you're looking for it to do what God never meant for it to do. Trust me, I'm living it. We buy this 160-year-old farmhouse. You're like, that sounds like a terrible idea. It gets worse. No one lived in it for like seven years. And, and you're like, okay, man, when we get that done, it's going to be all, and, like, and then you get that done, and you just turn, and you're like, oh, great, then there's that. Now it's a gift from God. We know he called us there. It's an awesome project. We're looking forward to a hobby of a lifetime. It's a gift. 
I asked my wife before, I said, do you want a house or do you want a hobby? She said, I want a hobby. I said, deal. It's a gift from him. But if we're looking for it to bring some sort of soul satisfaction, it can't deliver it. The next car will just be, will still just be, a couple thousand pounds of metal rolling down the road on some rubber cylinders. Even if it's the dream car. And it's awesome. If you got the dream car, that's great. What a gift from God. But if it's supposed to bring meaning, it'll bring meaning till you dent it. Or till the other guy pulls into the parking lot and he's got the newer model. It can't do it. You'll save vigorously, discipline. You'll watch your bank account go up and up and up and you'll get excited and then your furnace will go out or your kid will need braces and everything you spent a year saving is gone in one orthodontist trip or one visit of a heating and cooling guy. And again, saving is good, it's wise, and it's prudent. But if the meaning of our life is there, the meaning of our life rides this rocky river of the ups and downs of balances, riches, we're never meant to sustain the meaning and purpose of our life. Give your pastor an amen. And so, we go, okay, okay, especially if you've grown up in church, you're like, I know, I know, I know, I got it. We're not supposed to find meaning in wealth. We're not supposed to find meaning in pleasure. We're not supposed to find meaning in the accumulation and stuff, right? We need to focus on higher, more noble things, like things like wisdom, right? Third thing, seeking ultimate meaning in wisdom is meaningless. What? Look where he goes next, verse 12. So I turn to consider wisdom and madness and folly for what, can the man, uh, for what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly. That's true. There's more gain in wisdom than in folly. As there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head. That's a great statement. Parents use it. Get your eyes in your head, right? The wise person has their eyes in their head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For of the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance. Seeing that in the days to come, all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life because what is done under the sun was grievous to me for all it's vanity and a striving after the wind. Now, me, wisdom is good. There's an entire book of the Bible before this book called the book of Proverbs. It's devoted to the obtaining of wisdom for God's people. The point of Ecclesiastes is to make us more wise and godly living. Wisdom is good. Solomon is saying, if you make wisdom the end goal, if it's just about seeking wisdom, apart from seeking the wisdom for the worship of God, you will find that that too is meaningless. If you just wanna be wise to be wise, if you just wanna be wise to be the smartest person in the room, you will find it is vanity, a chasing after a win. Why? Because eventually you'll walk into a room and someone who's more wise than you. 
I know, it's hard to believe, right? But it'll happen. Back to the cemetery. Even if your tombstone one day reads, here lies the wisest man this town has ever known. It can be a tombstone right next to one that reads, here lies the greatest fool this town has ever seen. And both people are six feet deep in the ground. He says, what's the purpose of wisdom? The purpose of wisdom is that we would live in the fear of the Lord, is that it would increase our worship. Wisdom is sought for the purpose of worship. Are you seeking wisdom to walk in a fear of the Lord and worship of him, or are you just seeking wisdom to be the smartest person in the room? One makes much of God, the other makes much of you. And when we make much of us, we make much of us to our own misery. Solomon says, even the pursuit of wisdom for just the goal of wisdom as the end game and not for the worship of the Lord is utterly meaningless. And then finally, one of our culture's greatest temptation to cast the weight of the meaning of our life on work. Seeking ultimate meaning in work is meaningless. Verse 18, I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool, yet he will be a master of all for which I toiled and use my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. What a section that gets at the heart of the workaholic. Toiling, striving, fretting, stressing, struggling, sacrificing, hour upon hour upon hour upon hour, and then one day you'll retire and they'll give you a watch. Or one day your company will be bought and the new company will hand you a box. And Solomon says, if there's nothing greater, what is the point? And if you're like, and some of you are like, all right, that's it. I'm calling in tomorrow. Not coming in. Why? Because it don't matter anyway. <laughs> no, that's not it. That's not it. What he's actually getting at is understanding this frees us to go to work and to work with all of our heart and all of our soul and all of our mind and all of our strength, and to see our work as worship to our great God, but not as a God in and of itself. And then when we get this, when work is not God, when God is God and work is to serve him, it then frees us to go home and to stop working, to walk in the door and be done, and to be home and to enjoy the people who are at home. And some of us need to just set some boundaries. How many hours a week will you work? 
How, when you go home, will you actually be home? What do you need to do so you can sleep at night without work robbing you of the rest that God has graciously given you as a gift? How will you Sabbath each week? And I know some of you are like, impossible. Dude, I love it. I know I'm with you, but like impossible. Especially those of you who lead your own company. Got your own small bit. You're like, I, it all sounds great in theory. I just don't know how it's possible. Uh, shortly after we planted the church, I called the pastor where, back in Michigan I grew up under, and I said, dude, like, when do you be done? Like, how do you be done at the end of, the, of a day or at the end of a week? He's like, okay, do you remember taking the SAT? I'm like, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about, he's like, no, no, follow me. He's like, do you remember taking the SAT? I said, yeah. He said, what do you do when they say at the end, okay, time's up, pencil's down? Let's say you put your pencil down, you're done. He said, what if you still have more, more questions that you need to answer? It's like, you're done. Pencils down. He said, in ministry, there comes a time each day where it's pencils down. And my guess is in your work world, there comes a time each day where it's, it's pencils down. There comes a time each week where it's pencils down. There comes some times in a year where it's time for vacation to enjoy family. It's pencils down. And when work isn't God, we actually have the freedom to do it. One of the blessings of COVID was uh, a lot of my lunches, non-COVID season, are, are meetings. I try to capitalize on the lunch hour for meetings with people. COVID meant a lot of lunch meetings were just like with the kids on the swing. So I'd come down from the master bathroom that was my home office, and, uh, and we'd go out, we'd play on the swing for a bit, and I was trying to be efficient, and so I'd push with one hand and I'd answer emails with the other. And uh, one day we turned and uh, all the other kids were napping and my five-year-old was walking in with me hand in hand. We were walking through the side door and he said, hey, Dad? And I said, yeah. He said, why are you always on your phone when you're out with us? What do you say to that? Another time during COVID. COVID, like, just shook so many things up, right? You're just trying to orient yourself. You're trying to understand, like, what do we need to do next? How do we lead through this? And so I'm sitting at the dinner table and my three-year-old's sitting right next to me and he's saying, Dad, hey, Dad, Dad. And I'm looking at him with my eyes, but my brain is at the office. And so I'm looking, but I'm not answering. My five-year-old in the chair over here goes, Dad, answer him. <laughs> I get it. How do we be home? It's things like this that the book of Ecclesiastes equips us for. Where we come to the end and we're not all depressed, we're freed from putting meaning at things in life that ultimately weren't ever supposed to be where our meaning was found. And we're free to do what we're going to talk about in the weeks to come, to enjoy the simple beauty in a day and to enjoy the dinner table and the relationships that God has given us. And to stop the pursuit of more and new and bigger and better and just go, thank you, God, for what we have. Anyone else with me and need that over the next couple weeks? Church, stand with me. And as you do, let me just say, 
my prayer is that if every time you close the book of Ecclesiastes throughout the course of your life, you just shook your head and you're like, whoa, I don't feel like I should do anything right now. What's the point? My prayer is that you would see this month the beautiful gift from God he's given us in this teaching. That we would be freed from finding meaning in our life and things that don't ultimately have meaning so that we can be freed to enjoy the good gifts each day that God has given us and wants us to enjoy. Amen? Redeemer, you're loved and you're sent. We'll see you back here next Sunday.